Blue Like Jazz was a book that I, I wrote when I was 29 and it sold over a million copies. I still agree with everything's in it, but I know if I read it, I would think one thing more than anything else. I would think you were such an absolute complainer and wimp. So these days I would, I would have written a completely different book that wouldn't have sold as much. So, you know, I'm not 60. I have a decade to go till I get anywhere near that, but I'd rather be a hypocrite than to stay the same person forever. And so I'd rather have written Blue Like Jazz rather than say, well, I'll wait till I'm 60 and then we'll see how I feel about this last season. I think it's okay to go ahead and speak your voice now. What is up, you sexy bastards? It is your boy, K-Gang, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talked to one of my favorite authors of all time, Donald Miller. So I've spent the last two years trying to get him on the show so I could introduce you to him, and we finally made it happen. Don's books have spent more than a year on the New York Times bestseller, and my favorite one of all time is A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. He's also the CEO of StoryBrand, a marketing company that works with Charity Water, Berkshire Hathaway, Chick-fil-A, and a bunch more on their brand messaging. Here's three gigantic things you're going to learn in this episode. It's one of my favorites. Number one, what does it mean to live a full life of Hail Marys and why it's the only path to live an interesting life? Number two, how you can create meaning in your own life, especially if you're going through a tough time. And three, the mindset you need to develop if you want to write a best-selling book. Enjoy those three things, plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Before we dive into the show, make sure you subscribe to my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash okdork, where I put out two to three tasty business videos every single week to help people just like you on your business journey, as well as I do exclusive office hours for people who are subscribed. That's youtube.com slash okdork. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener Phil from the U.S. It's my grandpa's name, so nice name, Phil. He left a review saying, I've been listening to you forever, and I finally wanted to write a review. I'm always entertained, and I always learn something on your shows, which is more than enough for me to listen. Thank you so much, Phil. I love you and every other one of you gorgeous listeners out there. If you want a shout out in a future episode, leave a review anywhere online. I check every single one of them. Sometimes lately, it's been interesting to ask people what they perceive you as. I was out last night. And with this. I was on a date. I broke up with my fiance, so I didn't. If she ah, listens, I, I went, did that. I wrote, yeah. a book, I wrote a book about, about <laughs> after having done that. Which one was that one? Scary Close. I wrote Scary Close after when I actually met the woman I would marry, but it's reflecting on some of the pain of screwing up so many times. I've read the book twice. Oh, thank you. My gosh. <laughs> You're the one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, uh, I did ask her last night. I was like, oh, what did you perceive me as? And I think that's a lot of your message, like what the world is thinking of us from the outside versus like how we're, you know, feeling on the inside. I mean, so you wrote a book about broken up, about breaking up. Well, you know what? I, I said that. And then after I thought about it, it's really more a book about Betsy and my relationship. I started it before we got married and finished it after we got married. And I got married at 42. It's an adult reflection on basically what it takes to actually connect with somebody, I guess. I mean, I, it's hard to say what that book is really about. <laughs> but but if I were to write a book about my dating life, I mean, it would have to be a, a confessional of just ridiculous dysfunction and codependency. I mean, it's just like, just like, absolutely. A buddy of mine said, you should write a book about dating. And I said, yeah, it'll be called How to Hide Your Codependency Long Enough to Trick Somebody into Marrying. You know? <laughs> that would be my book on dating. And it would probably be a bestseller and help lots of people. <laughs> Um, I don't even know where to go from there. So tell me more about that. Oh, I can't. I can't. I'd have to name names and then I'd be in trouble. I guess, how do you decide what you're going to share in your stories versus not? 
I have some rules. I don't throw anybody under the bus. I really do not try to make anybody look bad. And, and I'm not against that. Like if somebody feels the need to write about their parents you know, or abuse or whatever, I'm not against it. I just personally don't. I don't like doing that because I think people can change. And there's something about personifying them in a book that makes it permanent. And so I try not to write about that. And then I also try not to write about my shortcomings or my challenges until they've been resolved. So I write about them in hindsight. So I joke about codependency, but I wouldn't consider myself any longer a very codependent person. So to me, that's like a green light to go ahead and write about it. And I I don't know exactly why. I think there's two reasons. I'm an Enneagram three, so I want to be perceived as a winner. So I don't want to write about being a loser. And then I just think it's helpful when you actually say, and here's how I fixed it. I hope that you can, I hope that that helps you as well, but no guarantees. Those are my only two rules about deciding what stories to tell. And they ha- then, of course, they have to be entertaining and interesting. <laughs> Otherwise, I won't write about it. Yeah. Well, I think what's fascinating and scary close is I didn't think about it in that way. I guess I just thought of it as like kind of like this is you being sharing yourself. But it's interesting. You took it as like, here's my breakup and meeting Betsy and that part of our relationship. Yeah. I mean, it was my wife is one of maybe four things that I would consider a miracle in my life. And we all have them. And so I don't mean to actually say a spiritual miracle because I, I that's out of my pay grade. I don't know what is and what isn't a spiritual miracle. But, um, but just something that you just go, come on, this feels like a really wonderful thing. And so, so getting, you know, having been single for so long and then, and I, you know, I enjoyed being single actually. You know, I date a girl for a year and then rather than getting married, I'd break up, you know, just stuff like that, that now that I'm going to, I'm older. I look back and I just think, Miller, you should not have done that. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and then to be blessed with, with just the best possible companion, I feel unworthy of that. That was worth writing a book about. Do you really feel unworthy of it? Well, I mean, you know, in some ways that's a self-esteem issue, you know, are we really unworthy in it? But I think the reality is the best way to approach life is to be grateful and feel undeserving of so much of what you get in life because it really just sets you up to have a humble peaceful existence and so i do i I, but i don't just feel that about me i feel like all of us are probably unworthy of or undeserving maybe the better word of the sort of grace that we're giving each other and giving to each other each day you probably are familiar with this noah but there's i know malcolm gladwell wrote about it i think it was out of the university of washington There was some sort of study on marriages, and this guy could predict within something like 90% effectiveness whether or not a couple would get divorced. You know, he really could predict at a high level who was going to make it and who wasn't. And the one thing that was the predictor was contempt, that if either party felt contempt for the other, it's over. And so what, you know, if you think about what the opposite of contempt is, the opposite of contempt would be two people who just go, I am so far out of my league, (laughs) right? So, so when I'm with Betsy, I'm like, I don't deserve, I don't deserve this girl. I'm way out of my league. And when she's with me, she's like, I don't deserve this guy. And that somehow makes a relationship really work. Where on the other hand, you, you know, if you have any sense of like, I am so much better than you and I deserve better than this, it's probably over at some point in the near future. Wow. That was beautiful. Was it? I, uh, well, that's Malcolm Gladwell and some researcher. No, that was, that, that was Donald Miller. <laughs> uh, well, I will say I have to. I have a confession. Last night I was w- watching Millionaire Dating, 
my roommate was watching it when I got home, and it's a poor person, more or less, with a rich person, and it's Are male you and female. Serious? That's oh, yeah. fascinating, so, actually. Does it live up to its expectations? Yeah, I don't remember the exact title, and uh, maybe if I, I, <laughs> I don't even know if I would have said it to you, but it was basically it was kind of fascinating to see the dynamics of their relationships and a sixty-year-old guy with a twenty-year-old woman. There's some just uh, interesting uh, dynamics between these relationships, but relationships are complicated. They're uh, very complicated, and they're fluid. Yeah, I mean, breaking up with my fiance was uh, was that extremely painful? So I felt that right there. Yeah, it's been it's been challenging. How it's long ago really was that? We were together three and a half years, and then we broke up in April. So we were in Austin, Texas, and I left uh, California. So I'm kind of I don't feel like I'm escaping. I feel like I'm just trying to rebuild and refine myself. Uh, and I found it a little bit easier to do that with some distance. I think the painful part for me is I felt a lot of guilt. That was the most painful part is I felt a lot of guilt. The girl that I haven't been engaged to was a really wonderful human being. Totally. And, uh, and I just wasn't a wonderful human being. And so there's still a lot of guilt. But I also trust that, that you know, she's also very smart and strong and she was going to be okay. But that, that was the hardest part was just guilt. But then you learn so much about yourself. You learn so much about the mistakes that you've made and why did I get into this and why did I do what I do? And, and so in a way, somehow you get blessed from your own mistakes as long as you're willing to learn from them. And, and in hindsight, now, 10 years later, and having been married for seven years, it's just not that big of a deal. You know what I mean? It's like, that's how dating and relationships work. And thank goodness, you know, it didn't, go all the way to become a divorce, which I think is even harder. So I wish you the best. I'm sorry that it's tender. And how awful to do that and then go right into quarantine. What was during quarantine? Right after it started, huh? Yeah, it was right after it started. And we actually, I mean, we got along great during quarantine. Quarantine actually, I've loved quarantine. Like this has been amazing for me. Are you an introvert? I guess I am at times. Yeah. I think I was more extroverted in general, but it kind of just really helped me. I think you'll get this. I feel called. I feel like God or someone or something called me during this period to be helpful. I feel like I woke up. That's really cool. I love it. So yeah, we're experiencing man, you during your enlightenment, during one of your enlightenments, because hopefully um, there will be many. Yeah, I mean, I think the two things in terms of feeling enlightened, I feel so blessed. I think about that almost every day. I'm in this insane house, which I've never had a nice house in my life. And I get a beat and it's like, I was like, wow, I did it. And then I have this friend who lives with me, Neville. And he's just so interesting and so fun. And I'm, and then just getting to hang out with you today. Like, I've looked forward to this for months just to oh, be able to hang so, out. Yeah, I'm so excited. That's awesome. You know, earlier when I said when two people feel like they're out of their league, are they, you know, <laughs> they feel like they got the best deal in the relationship. <laughs> when each person feels like I got the best deal in the relationship, that relationship is going to thrive. But, you know, if you think about it, that also translates to life. When you actually think, you know, the fact that the sun is coming up and I get to do a little bit of what I want and I'm surrounded by a really cool roommate. That's an important aspect of mental health, I think, is this true sense of I'm really grateful. I got a good thing going. And of course, entitlement just kills that, right? Well, I think it's one thing to write what we're grateful about. I do every morning I write one thing I'm grateful. And so a lot of my gratefulness is like microwave, warm water. It's smaller ones, but I think lately i've just been really grateful of the small things yeah normally a lot of the way i've been behaving i'd say for the past almost 40 years is like my next thing my next subscriber my next money i'm in relationship therapy and she's like what about just right now what about just being okay and i was like what are you talking about she's like 
just right now. And I was like, well, how do I study that? And like, where's the book on that? She's like, there's no more books. <laughs> Actually, she said something to me on Monday that was that really made me feel great. She's like, you're perfect the way you are. Like, you don't need to improve anymore. There's no more book to read. And then I felt some shame because we did. Um, uh, we went out partying one night and I had therapy the next day and I felt that she was ashamed of me. And I felt really guilty about it. And I talked to her the next uh, few days ago. I was like, hey, were you mad at me? And she's like, no, I want you to have joy. And so, yeah, I think that with I've just been trying to slow down and um, and just kind of be like, hey, the sun's here. Hey, like yesterday I, I'm working on a book, which I, I would like to uh, get your advice on. But I worked on the book for 15 minutes. And at first afterwards, I was like, dude, you only did 15 minutes. You, you freaking loser, like not loser. But I was like, only 15 minutes. And then a few hours later, I, she's she's been telling me to just appreciate the small wins. And so like a few hours later, I was like, hey, man, like that was a good 15 minutes. Hey. You know, that's part of my book writing strategy. Is it? 15 to 30 minutes first thing in the morning, you would be amazed at how quickly you write a book and also how good the book is. You have 24 hours to reflect on what you just said and add another page. And you can get a book done pretty darn quick. And I think it's sometimes it's an even better book. I mean, there are times when you got to sit down and give it four hours, you know, especially like in editing or something. I mean, we've, we've switched topics now, but in terms of writing, it's hard to come up with really brilliant things for four hours straight, right? I mean, you, you kind of can flesh out one good idea and then you need to sleep and come up, flesh out the next good idea. <laughs> well, let's come back on writing. I do. I would like to stay on relationships for a little bit longer. The two things I was thinking about or I would like to, get, to hear your opinion is how did you work on yourself? Because I think there's people listening that are like, well, oh, he worked on himself and then he wrote a book about it. Should everyone write a book about it? How do you think people should approach that? Well, there's. I don't know if, if you or your listeners are in the Enneagram, but I'm an Enneagram three with a four wing. The four wing, if anybody understands the Enneagram, is uh, naturally self-reflective. So my personality kind of likes thinking about why'd you do that and what was really at the root of that, that sort of thing. And then I just had a lot of semi-unhealthy characteristics to unpack and figure out because they were costing me, right? They were costing me success they were costing me relationships they were costing me you know money in the long run and so i felt the need to kind of go okay what's really wrong and then if you actually if you can figure out when you have that paradigm shift of okay if i'm self reflective and i can figure out what i'm doing wrong in conversations with people in the way i present myself and i can heal from that and become better then I'm going to be more successful in life. So there, there was actually a bit of a selfish motivation, if you will, to healing. And then, and then on top of that, I got help. I had a couple ther short-term therapists in my 20s and 30s. I mean, not very long. I'd see them for like a few months. But then I went to a place called, well, if you read Scary Close, you know, I went to a place called Onsite Workshops, which was a week-long therapeutic retreat center, is a week-long therapeutic retreat at a retreat center outside of Nashville, Tennessee. And that was really life-changing to me. That was the most punctuated evolution in terms of how quickly I grew as a person. And part of it is because the, the stuff that they taught me taught us at Onsite, and partly because where I was in relationship, in an actual romantic relationship, was painful at that time. And so I was just a sponge. I just soaked it all up and quickly changed and changed so much as a person that I was able to finally be compatible with somebody who was really healthy. And now I'm in a, I've enjoyed what I think of as a very, very healthy relationship. And so that was worth writing about in the long run. 
you know, how do you work on yourself? I don't know how, because I think everybody's different, but why is because, you know, the more healthy you become as a person, the more you enjoy life. We've got a pretty brief window, if you really think about it, at enjoying this life. And I want, I want to actually enjoy it. How did you know that that person wasn't for you? And then I guess, how did you know on the other side that Betsy was for you? We just weren't ultimately very compatible. I didn't feel like I could become the person I needed to be if I stayed in the relationship. And I didn't feel like she could become the person she needed to be. And also, some of the things that were naturally good about her and okay about her triggered some of my fears and insecurities. And so because of that, I didn't like who I was becoming in that relationship. I needed to have never gotten into the relationship and and done some work first, if that makes sense. And because of that, I think I hurt her and wasn't any good to myself either. And so it just needed to end. And those things are never fun. They're sloppy. They're messy. But they beat the heck out of staying in the relationship and all the pain that would be caused if you stayed in it. And, you know, we need to free each other up to go our own ways and do our own healing and find our own path. And so, you know, there were other things besides just that. But in the end, the pain of being alone was less than the pain of being in the relationship, if that makes sense. Or the, the fear and risk of starting over was less than the pain of being in the relationship. I'm a pretty big fan of, you know, if it ain't working, you might want to get out a little sooner than later. And then with Betsy, I'd met Betsy four years before we went out. I met her at a bed and breakfast in Washington, D.C. She was running the bed and breakfast and I was in D.C. doing some work. And uh, I liked her immediately. But she was, I'm telling you, no, she was just, she felt to me so far out of my league. Not in terms of, I mean, she's a very beautiful woman. But in terms of her character, it was just a mismatch. But I, I had grown a whole lot. And so I happened to run into her again. I was back in D.C. She knew I was coming to town. She called because a friend of hers wanted to meet me, who's you know just a writer. We got dinner and, and with her friend and me and her. And it was one of those things, again, where I was just like, man, every time I'm, I hang out with this girl, it's like a month where you have a cold, where you just can't stop thinking about her. And you, just, you know, it's like, <laughs> I get the virus every time I hang out with her. It's, I don't know if that's the best analogy, but yeah. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's like, it's like you catch something. So I finally just told her that her friend slipped away. And I, I said, hey, are you, are you seeing anybody? And she said, yes. You know, I've been in a relationship for three years. And I said, three years is a long time. Is that serious? And she said, well, yeah, I'm not sure what he wants to do and where he's going. And he likes his work more than he likes me. And I said, I don't think you should be treated that way. And I said, in 30 days, you'll love this. In 30 days, I'm going to call you and I'm going to ask you on a date. And it would be best if you weren't in a relationship. Because if three of us go on a date, it's weird. Who's going to pay? <laughs> and I just kind of made a joke when I said, I feel like this guy's kind of cramping what we got going on. And you should probably. <laughs> and I meant it as a joke. I called her back 30 days later. She was out of the relationship. She was like, yeah, I'll go out with you. So I flew to DC and I took her on one date and we started talking on the phone. And about a year and a half later, we were married. Wow. You just never know how those things, but it felt like to me, it felt like, you know, Doug Flutie throwing that Hail Mary in college. <laughs> it felt exactly like that. <laughs> just throw one into the end zone, see if somebody comes up with it. That's wild, man. I guess, one, I kind of wonder where that guy is. You know, oh, why he's did great. He get... He's actually married to uh, somebody else and they have a kid and that all settled really, really well. And he's also a good guy, wasn't a bad guy. You know, they weren't in a relationship that was going to work uh, so long term. And so- Betsy and I now are. That's amazing. Congratulations. 
What other Hail Marys have you done in life? I do a lot of Hail Marys, Noah. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> I know. I was just, it sounds exciting. It is. Because if you get used to the fact that, that 9 out of 10 are going to be dropped in the end zone, you'll keep throwing them and, and 1 out of 10 get caught, right? So if you think about my whole career, I mean, writing a book and sending it to a publisher in, in many ways is a Hail Mary. Switching careers from a memoirist to a business writer is a Hail Mary. In, in about six years, I will probably run for office as an independent, and I will run against the Democrat and Republican Party. That will be my I, my challenger won't even be in a, a person. It's going to be these two ridiculous parties that waste our money by fighting with each other rather than fighting for the American people. You know, it's a Hail Mary. It's like, let's see if somebody can get elected to the Senate by saying Republicans, Democrats all need to go. <laughs> because you guys are ruining our democracy in some ways. You know, those are all just Hail Marys. And I think you just have to, you have to be serious and you have to take those things very seriously. They're not a joke, but you also, I think you have to be willing to lose and be okay with that. You say that a lot. I take quotes from all your books. That's kind of a theme of yours. Be willing to lose? Yeah, it's, um, you know, a good movie has memorable scenes and so does a good life. But uh, one line you said that was that the great stories go to those who don't give in to fear. Isn't that true? I know, but it's hard in the moment. And when you actually have to throw the pass, you're like, ah, I could do a run play or we could just kick the ball. Well, if you think about the consequences are so much less than you ever thought. Here's the thing that's interesting because we all, we all care what other people think. You know, let's say you suffer a big loss. The best thing you can do is go out and try to get a win as fast as possible, because as soon as you do, you are immediately redefined. But most people with a loss, they'll sit with a loss for 10 years. I'm like, well, come on. <laughs> you know? Yes, yes. You're kidding me. You know, you go out and nobody will even remember some dumb thing that you said. It's resilience is what it is. And there's something to be said for the ability to get up, suffer a loss and get up again and try to get that next win. I was just talking to a comedian recently. And I asked him, what do you do after a bad set? And what do you do after nobody gets the jokes? And he just said, you have to get up on stage as quickly as possible so that that moment doesn't define you. And I just thought, that's Strong. really good life advice. That's not just comedian advice. That's like really good life advice. Totally. Don't let that moment define you. Yeah, it's been interesting to go back and date. It's a little, um, I was talking to my therapist, like, it's kind of like every girl I meet now, I'm like, are you the one? Because I'm trying to get a W and I'm also trying to figure out, you know, the 38 year old version of Noah, like who is he again, right? Like who is the single non-codependent uh, person right now or dependent? And uh, she's like, you don't have to marry everyone you meet. <laughs> she's like, she's like, you don't, you could just enjoy it. I'm like, what do you mean enjoy it? She's like, just enjoy the dates. And if you don't feel like dating, don't even date, enjoy not dating. Yeah. You know, I got some weird, Jordan Peterson is obviously a very controversial person. And I don't know everything about it. But I got some weird thing when I read the first chapter of his book, 12 Rules for Life. And it's almost like that's what I got out of it. Not in related, not related to dating because I was married, but this sense of there's some kind of power in knowing who you are, being focused on whatever it is you're trying to build, and not being dependent on another person to somehow name you. That I don't know. There's a freedom to it. And I wonder if that's what your therapist is getting at, the sense of just don't put any weight on this. You know, that would be the one thing that you and I are very different. So this isn't advice to you, but maybe some of your listeners would need it. That would be the one thing if I could go back to me as a 21-year-old and say, I want to give you some advice on dating now that I'm 48 years old. 
to 21 year old, I would go back and I'd say, if you could just tell yourself one thing about dating, I would say, here's the one thing that's going to make your life go a lot easier as it relates to dating. Don't make it heavy. Mm. Just don't do it. Keep it light. No matter what, even if you've been dating for two years and you get dumped, keep that moment as light as you can. You can't keep it light, but try to mitigate some of the heaviness of it and things will go a lot better for you. With that question, how do you think you did change from post-fiancé in that interim? Like, What did you change about yourself between the ex-fiancé and Betsy? Because sometimes I think what I've considered as well is maybe I'm not changing, but maybe I'm just revisiting. I'm coming to the single Noah where there's no other person I have to really worry about necessarily and, and finding the Noah that I'm just really enjoying. I love that. I think that's a great evolution. The thing that changed about me literally was codependency. I think I learned what codependency was and I had no idea. And it was explained to me, and I talk about it in the book, the therapist that I worked with in this group therapy session put three pillows on the ground. She had one person stand on one pillow, another person stand on another pillow, and then there was a pillow in between them. And she said, here's how I want you to think about relationships. You know, this is your pillow. You're, you're standing on a pillow. So there were pillows, but imagine just squares on the ground. And the other person standing on their pillow. She goes, you are never in charge or have anything to do with that person's pillow ever. You don't try to change them. You don't. The only thing that you can do is say, when we both step on this pillow together, I do or don't like this. In other words, you're all, you're saying, well, that person mm. is you know, is kind of a jerk. And I don't want a jerk in my relationship. So I'm actually going to get out of this relationship because I don't want to be in a relationship that involves a jerk. But I'm not going to try to make them not a jerk because that's their pillow. All I can control is my pillow and my part of the relationship. And if I don't like it, I'm out rather than trying to change it. That was just ridiculously empowering to me because I just felt this need to try to control the other person and the way they were interacting with me rather than say, eh, I really don't like it. Or to be able to go, hey, when you say this, it makes me feel this. Do you think we could somehow communicate in such a way where where I don't feel that way or try to get to the bottom of that because the, I would like our relationship not to have that? Then you actually, the person decides whether or not they want to change or stay in the relationship, but you're not actually trying to change the relationship. You take their pillows. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's all I was doing. I was just all over their freaking pillows. I mean, no wonder they, I mean, I feel so bad. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I was all up in your pillow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if it depends on how nice of a pillow, I mean, pillow makes a huge difference. But I mean, one thing that I've been- That's my uh, book. My... It'll be stay off my pillow. <laughs> <laughs> the sequel to make your bed. Um... Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. One thing, my word of the year is congruency. Every year I have a word of the year and it's a word to kind of remind me what my intent of the overall year is. And the, and the way I came to that word last year was I felt like in certain aspects of my life, I really liked how I was behaving. I liked how in my business life, it was like, all right, we have a goal and then we have a plan and then we have check-ins and then we have reliability and we have people that I love working with and I love our customers and I love what we get to do. And then I was looking at maybe my relationship life and... It didn't feel as organized. Not that it has to be organized. It didn't feel as like in that same parallel of I love this. It didn't feel like this is like my calling. This is my path. And then I started noticing how in certain things on my work life were like I'd rush into projects like, all right, I'm going to go to YouTube. Let's rush into YouTube. And then I'm kind of in the YouTube world. I'm like, is this where I wanted to be? Kind of similarly in the relationship. Like, let's go in. All right. 
is this? And so I wanted to kind of behave congruently between those two two worlds as well as in my like in my personal life outside of those. I was curious, like as you were growing in your relationship, how did that mirror in your professional? I spent 10 years or more as a writer only writing books. And so imagine the only thing that you have to turn in for work is one thing every 18 months. It's way too much freedom. Do I want to work today? Ah, you got 17 months. You don't need to work today. You go kayaking. <laughs> you know, that was my life. Now I have 24 employees and I don't know what the number is anymore. It's got to be, I mean, I think I probably have to make somewhere around $30,000 a day or I have to lay somebody off, you know, so that's a different world. So I'm a completely different human being in terms of my professional career than I was 10 years ago. And I much prefer this version. I would have never predicted that I am wired as an executive, but I really am. I really enjoy it. But now it's about, you know, I'm up early every morning. I'm getting my work done. Then I'm meeting with people so that they can get their work done. You know how this is, but I view starting and running a company like going on a road trip across the country in a car that keeps breaking down and you only have duct tape and a wrench. You know, that's like all you've got. And you, you know, it's just constantly, there's constant pressure. And I just come alive under it. It's a creative life versus a, not that I'm not creative as a professional, but versus a, a managing life. And uh, both were equally fulfilling to me. In fact, I, I would argue that, that running a company is more fulfilling than even writing my memoirs ever was. Not that it wasn't great. It was great. But running a company is more fulfilling. Go on. Well, I can defend that statement by saying <laughs> running a company is really, to me, it's building a community. You cannot be a jerk or a guy who doesn't show up, or passive aggressive, or any of that, and create a healthy community. You know, so to me, it's this inciting incident that forces responsibility. And after 10 years of writing memoirs, where I could just take the day off and go kayaking rather than get writing done, I needed a good dose of that. What do you think StoryBrand says about you? One thing I've learned maybe, I don't know, 15 years ago was that your, your business is you as a, it's a projection of you in company form. Hopefully it says more about our customers and what they respond to than it does about me. If it says anything about me, it says that art and business can can live together and succeed because my business is really about ancient story structure and literature as it relates to marketing and messaging. Marketing and messaging are very measurable, you know, dynamics and story is very fluid and subjective. And yet we've kind of turned it into a science and a formula in order to get the measurable objectives. So hopefully that's what it says about me that I was really I was able to combine those two worlds. I have a limiting belief that I don't think unless you're like over 60 you can write a memoir. <laughs> I I would share that with you as a hypocrite who wrote like seven of them. <laughs> seven. Well, I will say this though. I you know, I wrote uh I wrote a I, they're memoirs but there there was really only one kind of memoir. It was a memoir of about 3 months of my life called Prayer in the Art of Volkswagen Maintenance. It's now called Through Painted Deserts is the name of the book. And um other than that, they weren't really memoirs. They were books about topics through the lens of a person exploring that topic. So it wasn't really like, this is what's happened in my life. Maybe Scary Close will be a memoir. But I also think there's a there's value to writing what you feel at the time. Blue Like Jazz was a book that I, I wrote when I was 29, and it sold over a million copies. 
And I still agree probably with everything that's in that book, although I haven't read it in over 10 years. I still agree with everything's in it. But I know if I read it, I would think one thing more than anything else. I would think you were such a wimp. You were such an absolute complainer and wimp. So these days I would I would have written a completely different book that wouldn't have sold as much. So, you know, I'm not 60. I have a decade to go till I get anywhere near that. But I think there is something about capturing your voice and being willing to let it change. Did you see the documentary, the Beastie Boys documentary? No, is it good? It's excellent. It's two of the three guys, because obviously one of them passed. They actually talk openly about some of the lyrics in that License to Ill record, especially the song Girls, which is very demeaning to women. And they talk regretfully about having ever written or sang that song. And one of them was confronted and said, you know, you're such a hypocrite. You know, you wrote that song and now you have daughters. And, and he just said, you know, I'd rather be a hypocrite than to stay the same person forever. And I just thought this is a really wise statement. And so I'd rather have written Blue Like Jazz rather than say, well, I'll wait till I'm 60 and then we'll see how I feel about this last season. I think it's okay to go ahead and speak your voice now. I love that. What would you write about now and what would it be titled? Well, I am writing. I mean, I'm writing. I have a series of business books that uh, are going to be coming out. There's two books that I'm working on that I'm very, very excited about. One is called Hero on a Mission, and it's basically a very practical step-by-step explanation of how to take yourself through Viktor Frankl's logotherapy. That's what that book is. That's been the most healing revelation of my life would be Viktor Frankl's logotherapy and all that it encompasses. He wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning that everybody should read. And then the second book is called The Victim, Villain, Hero Guide, Four Roles We Play in Life and the One That Matters Most. And it's an exploration of the four major roles that are in almost every story and how each of those characters exist within each of us and how the more you find yourself playing the victim or the villain, the worse your life is going to be. And the more you find yourself playing the hero and the guide, the better your life is going to be. And it teaches you to recognize the difference. It's funny. The past week, I'd say I keep waiting for it to fall. What do you mean? I was like in a business meeting last week with our leadership team and I was like, it can't keep going this well. <laughs> and then yesterday in my personal life, I was like, you know, I was on a date and I'm in this house and I'm healthy and I like my body and I'm liking my friendships and loving them. And I'm just like, can it last forever? You know, I, I believe there are blips involved in all of it, but the answer is yes. You know, Betsy and I asked that the first year we were married, we married seven years. And the first year we were married, it was going so well. And of course, everybody says the first year is the hardest and marriage is difficult and marriage is hard. And we're sitting there going, I don't get it. We've been married seven years. No, I think we've had three arguments. You know, it's just the easiest relationship. And so we were asking ourselves, okay, when's the shoe going to drop? When are we going to actually present the part of ourselves that we hate? And it just never happened. So then we, <laughs> then we started asking ourselves, well, we're clearly going to be fine, but what if we hate our kids? <laughs> 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 because there's this false belief that life has to be tragic, and it doesn't. It is for many people. That's not to say that there aren't people who experience tragedy. It just doesn't have to be. And then if it is tragic, those are seasons. They're not life. There's just a tragic season. It's nice to hear that. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing, man, this life. I wish I understood why we were here. It's the only part I don't get. <laughs> if you find out, <laughs> let me know. I will. Be a Believe text. me, I'll write that book real quick. 
I'll write it and I'll read it to myself on my yacht. <laughs> Your yacht in heaven. I mean, it would be in the cloud, it'd be in the sky. That's right. Um, when I think of you, well, I guess, what, what do you think of yourself? And then maybe I could tell you what I think of you if you're curious. I really try to get lost in my work. I mean, that, that's what logotherapy is. That's what Viktor Frankl says. He says, you know, have a project that you deem is so important that requires you to show up that you love getting up every morning and working on it. Viktor Frankl's a, a psychologist who was alive w- w- during the time of Freud. And Freud argued that man's chief desire was for pleasure. And Viktor Frankl came along at the same time and said, Freud's wrong. It's not pleasure, it's meaning. And when people can't find meaning in their life, they distract themselves with pleasure. And I just thought that's genius. And then he said, he said meaning is an actual feeling. And I think I feel it every day. And um, he said, you get it by doing three things. You have a project that you're working on. Uh, you have an optimistic perspective on your suffering. So even though you have challenges, you're able to see some sort of bright side to every one of them. Because of this breakup with my fiance, I'm learning this about myself. It doesn't make it less painful. Actually, it does make it less painful. But it also says, okay, you know, there's two sides to this coin. I'm also getting something. So in other words, your challenges don't take you out. They don't take you down because there's also some buoyancy to them. And then the third is just a community that you share your experiences with. That's it. I mean, it's, it's so practical and pragmatic, it's ridiculous. It's not like finding the Buddha. There's none of that. And then when you really analyze it, and I don't want to say anything negative about Frankel because he is my hero. What he's really doing, though, is he's figuring out a way that you can distract yourself emotionally from nihilism. Because if you really sit and study your belly button or yourself for too long, you're going to be a nihilist. <laughs> so to me, it's like, I don't need, I'm not super interested in figuring out who I am. I'm interested in finishing these next three books, trying to get this company to pass $100 million a year, saving up enough money, at least $25 million, to run as an independent candidate for Senate and probably lose, almost assuredly lose that election. Also, I don't have to think about how meaningless life is. <laughs> <laughs> One, when you run for Senate, I'll fly to Tennessee. I'll come uh, campaign. You'll be the only one. 100%. (laughs) You and I will go door to door. No, I'm in. No, I think, no, I I really think I'm going to do it. It's going to be about about six years from now. All right. It's it's in the calendar. So that's That's hilarious. You can actually go forward six years. I just do, you can use Siri. I just, so follow up with Donald Mill. It's July 29th, uh, 2026. Remind me tomorrow to put out the dry cleaning, but I didn't know you could actually say, remind (laughs) me six years from now. Yeah, I do a lot of also automatic, uh, repeated reminders so like every morning it'll remind me to like write my gratitude it'll be like hey what's what's what are you happy about today i think what you're saying as well with life being meaningless is that there i think where i've started really getting excited is that there's really fulfillment in all of it enlightenment is like every moment if we allow it that's what i'm observing in that life uh, is really enjoyable if you can give up control of why we're here why we exist you know and i have theories i I, you know i'm a person who prays to jesus i don't want to make myself sound like an agnostic but I have no idea why he has us here. You know, the church would have answers to that, but I don't know if I agree with those answers. In other words, I don't know that the, I think the church actually speaks for Jesus all that much sometimes. That's a whole other podcast. But, you know, I think there is a reason, and I think we can all intuit through that reason. I think a big part of it is, you know, if I intuit what God is doing, it's be as helpful as possible, try to save as many lives as possible, preserve the dignity of others, call corruption what it is. You speak up against lies, take a stand for truth. It's all those things that we're taught in freaking elementary school. 
they're just hard to bring into our adult world. It is. I think some of the, you know, someone said this phrase and I loved it. It's like, you need to be childlike, not childish. Oh, that's very, I like that. I liked it too. And I think a lot of joy in life is that we add drinking or we add complexity. And it's like, if you kind of come back to some of the simplicity of, like for me, like I play a lot of chess and I do a lot of biking. And that's also what I did as a kid. And I think we we do other things. I'm like, no, just kind of keep it. No, you know, I'm trying to keep it simpler, simpler in that. On the religion thing, and we'll do that on another show. I do find it fascinating because as a, I'm a Jewish, I'm a Jewish person. You practicing? Uh, I practice it culturally, so I do Shabbat dinners. Yeah. I follow the high holidays. I, I'm studying Hebrew. I don't really follow the religion part as much. That's not as been my interest. But I've always found it fascinating with you and Bob, who I don't know how I stumbled on you guys. You guys are into Jesus and you guys talk about it. But for some reason, I find it accessible universally. And I really appreciate, I actually appreciate you guys talking about it. Neither Bob and I dig very deep into theology. We don't really care. We start falling asleep very, very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because I, I, I do tell people, it's like, hey, this, you guys, I never thought of it this way, but I'm like, yo, they're this Christian rock band, but the music's so good. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought of it that way. But what what we were talking about originally that that made me think about this is when I when I think of you, I always think of to live an interesting life, you have to do interesting things. I believe that's true. To have an interesting movie, you have to have interesting scenes, you know, that's completely true. So I was wondering for the audience and, and one of the things I always like is challenges. You know, one thing that I came up with the coffee challenge where you go ask for 10% off and you get rejected and you realize rejection's not so bad. And then you move forward and you're like, oh. You know, what else can I do? What else can I ask for? So I was curious what the Donald Miller challenge would be. To your audience? No, for yourself or for anyone. Finish this sentence as many times as you can. Not forever, but maybe as an exercise for a couple of days. If it weren't for me, X. Here's why. Woke up a morning, drove my scooter to the office. I realized when I got there, my wife had been calling me the whole time I was on my scooter. You know, I have a helmet on, so I can't hear the phone or anything. Call her back. She's in a panic. I think I just left her 10 minutes ago. A good friend of ours had taken his life. Sorry. Turn around. Get back on the scooter. Don't, don't talk to the staff. He was on my staff. Don't talk to the staff. Go back and go to be with his wife. And uh, over the next year, a whole community sort of showed up to help. He was a wonderful human being. Just had a moment of, I think of it more like a tragic accident than anything else. I mean, just a a moment of mental lapse. Those things are so complicated. You know, and over the next year, what struck me about his passing and he, him being missing was he nor I nor anybody can realize that a human being just can't be replaced. You know, if it weren't for him, somebody wouldn't be taking out the trash on Thursdays. If it weren't for him, somebody wouldn't be mowing the yard. And if it weren't for him, somebody wouldn't be paying this health insurance. And if it weren't for him, somebody wouldn't be comforting his wife tonight. If it weren't for him, somebody wouldn't have had beers with a friend and been able to encourage them. If it weren't for him, somebody wouldn't have. And that's gone. You literally, you do everything you can. I mean, I would show up and walk the dog. I walked the dog. I walked his dog every day for weeks, you know, just because the dog needed to be walked and the wife is grieving. So, you know, you know, the point is it really helped me understand, wow, if it weren't for me, Betsy would be in a really hard spot in life. If it weren't for me, you know, my company, the people would have to go find other jobs. If it weren't for me, you know, any moment that you have that's kind of like where you don't feel important for any human being on the planet is ridiculous. We are unbelievably important and intertwined. 
And to realize that, I think, helps you say, okay, I'm going to do another day of this life, no matter how depressed you are, because I don't care how sad you are, you're needed. You're just needed. So take out the recycling, go talk to your wife, have the beer with a friend, and do your fucking job. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're absolutely needed. That's the challenge. That was beautiful. Well, thanks for having me on, Noah. All right, man. Take care. Well, that's a wrap. I hoped you loved the episode as much as I did. If you did, go buy Don's book. I suggest you start with A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. It's about how to live an interesting life. It's one of the books I've gifted the most. And don't forget to subscribe to my YouTube channel if you want more juicy, juicy business content just like this. That's youtube.com slash okdork. Next, text a friend you love him. Hey, amigo, let's go throw some Hail Marys. And before you go, tweet at me at Noah Kagan. Let me know what you thought of this episode. I love hearing your feedback. And make sure you check out AppSumo.com. It is the number one site online for software deals. If you are starting or growing your business, this literally should be your homepage. Go sign up for the free newsletter to see what tools and amazing deals will help you grow your business at AppSumo.com. You know what I'm going to do at the end. A special shout out to my amazing team. Thank you to Jason at PodcastTech.com for doing all the podcast editing. Thank you to David, Mitchell, Jeremy, and Jen of the Dork Team for all the magic y'all do. And a final special shout out to Candice Murray, who is our customer support manager at AppSumo.com. Thank you for keeping all the sumolings happy. Smiley face. Have a burrito full day. What's your favorite sushi roll? <laughs>